Hello, this is your host, Ryan Reed. You're listening to Reminisce, where we're talking about all things education, health, and wealth. Today we have on the line William Anderson, and he's an educator in Denver Public Schools. He is, um, I met William in Har- at Harvard, and I was really impressed by the leadership model that they have. So I'm just going to start the conversation off just um, asking William to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about that leadership model and why um, he thinks it's making an impact in his school system. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be featured here on Reminisce. I am William Anderson from Denver, Colorado, by way of Aurora, Colorado. Um, I, I just couldn't be me if I didn't represent the, the suburb I was from right outside the right outside the city, good old Aurora. Um, this is my tenth year teaching and the distributive leadership model that Ms. Reed is talking about is one in which teachers have the opportunity to be in hybrid roles within our district where they teach half of the day and then they spend the other half of the day in a administrative role where they do observations, coaching sessions, and professional development for the teachers within the building. This is our sixth year, maybe fifth year, trying this model out. And so far, it has been a success, if, if you ask my opinion. Teachers at first were really hesitant to having other teachers doing their evaluation, but after kind of building rapport not just amongst the teachers but also amongst the idea of putting teachers in those leadership roles over the few years, I think it's something that the teachers really appreciate. I think it's something that administrators really appreciate. It's got less work for them to do as well as it just creates a different sense of accountability within the building. So these last five years that I've been in this hybrid role, have been uh, really good and have given me an opportunity to teach while also spreading my wings into some school-wide initiatives within our building. Mm-hmm. So um, you said for the last five years this hasn't been um, implemented. So um, how have the students responded to it? Have you seen growth in the students um, in their writing skills and their math skills? Um, what has your system seen as a result of this hybrid system? For the students, I would say in the schools that I've been in, because due to this hybrid model, I believe that instruction amongst our teachers is getting stronger, including my own. Me being able to be in so many different classrooms, um, to be able to coach and help better prepare teachers and just help me also better prepare myself. So I think that our students ultimately benefit from that because the teachers that um, are impacted by these hybrid roles, I believe, are, are improving. Okay. So um, has your school system, I know, um, when you were at Harvard, you were mentioning that your system uses a tracking system. 
kind of like a stoplight, correct? Um, similar, yeah. like the way yeah, that the so. schools are, are graded. Yeah, they yeah. Are, um, from so has your system red at the bottom. Mm-hmm. It has. In the time that I've been at my school, I've been at my school three years, this current school. And when I came in, we were at a bloody red school. I mean, um, one of the lowest performing schools in the district. Um, I moved here with the principal from my last school which was also a low-performing school. I was there for five years, and when I left, it was a green school, which is one level below the highest level that it can, it can um, achieve. The school that I'm at now, we are in the red. The district told us if we get to the upper red by the end of the school year, that would, that would be a W. And just through the system and structures that our principal, Nick Dawkins, brought in, we were able to move it from the red over the orange and into the uh, yellow band. And I would attribute a lot of that to the hybrid model, and that's the distributive leadership as well as just Nick's overall leadership and being able to bring in the right people, the right teachers, um, some of the right administrators to be able to do the work that needs to be done. And really, to your last question, help teachers provide the instruction for the students that they needed because really across the board, our math skills went up, our math scores went up, our writing scores went up, um, our standardized testing scores grew, and it was a really, really strong year. And I, I definitely think that distributed leadership model has something to do with it. All right, thank you for sharing that. Another thing that you mentioned at Harvard that you probably really didn't get a chance to explain too much was you said that the opportunity gap is um, a loaded statement. Can you take some time to um, unwrap that? Why Why do you believe that, and why do you think people need to have that mindset around that idea? Well, I believe the opportunity gap is a loaded statement because that gap is being attributed to a particular group of students around a particular amount of information or lack thereof information. Normally when we're talking about opportunity gaps, we're talking about black and brown students who are not achieving to the same level that their white peers are achieving and that space in between where their white peers are and the black and brown students are is this so-called opportunity gap. I think that's a loaded statement because if we are as a nation as in schools and education are really interested in making sure that we are serving all of our students um, to the best of our ability, we, it, would be, it would behoove us to really look at more than just this gap between our black and brown students and comparing them to our white students. I think other things we have to start to look at is academically the gap that's between our white students and our uh, students of Asian background. Our Asian students in this country are outperforming a lot of our white students, and there's some gap there. We never really get an opportunity to talk about that, and I don't bring it up mm-hmm. to say that our, our white students aren't doing as good as they need to be, but, like, there is something to be learned about why our Asian students are doing better than all students. Um, I think another gap we need to look at is the experience that our black and brown students bring with them to school. And by experience, I mean a lot of our black and brown students 
um, have a different lifestyle, a different life experience that they're bringing to school than a lot of our um, so-called white students do. And those white students don't get to bring that knowledge of life with them to school uh, that our black and brown students get to bring. And that, too, could be seen as a gap when we start to talk about the experience of our migrant students, students who might have come from different countries and they have this wealth of knowledge that comes with them from whatever country it is that they have, and then they have to live this American experience. This is an experience that our students who are born and raised in America do not have. So I think there's also a gap, an experience, a life gap in between our students who are immigrants and our students who are, who are Native. So we could pick apart so many different gaps within education that I think are all very important. So I think when we mm-hmm. speak about the, just say the opportunity gap, it can be loaded because my next question would be which opportunity gap are we talking about? Right, right. That, that's that's definitely true. So in education, we need to make sure that we're looking at the whole picture and just not focusing it on um, what the black and brown kids aren't doing, but what are where are the weaknesses for all students. And when we do that, then we're able to better support all the students in our classroom, um, regardless of what they come with or what they don't come with. So that's, Very that's much definitely so. Very much so. that's a that's a essential point that I think that most people um, they only talk about the opportunity gap when it's time to maybe apply for a grant or something like that. <laughs> So very much, or they want to just point their black and brown kids and tell them how they're wrong for doing whatever that it is, yeah. or how they need to do better, and how our white kids are doing fine, and like the rest of y'all aren't. So I, I, I just think it's a really um, mm-hmm. one way uh, way to view education when we have so many different ways to really tackle this. Piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it can be um, psychologically damaging to hear that message over and over again that you're not good enough. So, and that could also contribute to why there's a lack of performance at times um, in our classroom. Very much so. Very much mm-hmm. so. So um, this leads into my other question is about um, culturally responsive teaching. Um, does your system use culturally responsive teaching in and throughout um, instruction? And how do you ensure that the teachers in your school are considering all students in the room? Well, we definitely do our best to get our staff um, as culturally responsive as we can. Our students are about 95% black and brown students, um, about 88% to 95% free and reduced lunch, about 28% special needs. So we serve a really diverse and really dynamic group of students. That being the case, we really try to do our best job in providing professional development and, and continual ongoing training with our teachers from the summer until the next summer on ways to best serve the students that they have in front of them. Um, I am one of our deans of culture at our school or one of our um, staff members who is responsible for culture at our school. 
And part of my job is helping to develop um, those professional developments for our teachers and helping them to ensure that their practice is as responsive and as emancipatory as we can make it. One of the things that, for me professionally, I'm trying really hard to do is push my teachers out of this kind of pragmatic approach to solving um, issues that come up in education. I think so often teachers and, and administrators go to culturally responsive or emancipatory trainings and they're looking for this, tell me what I can do tomorrow in the classroom so I can go and do it and I can teach these kids. And I think that's a really problematic way to think about how we serve our students. I think mm-hmm. we need to take a lot more time really diving into research, diving into history, and diving into different uh, ideas and theory around the practices that we're bringing to our school, around a lot of the different systems and structures that we have within our school, and start answering some, rather than looking to just solve problems, I think we need to start asking better questions about why we see some of those problems within our schools so that when we do try to answer them, we can be a lot more informed. And that's where I want my teachers. I want my teachers to be as informed as possible about so many different aspects of education, so many different aspects of our students' culture, of their lived realities, of their historical realities, so that as they're making their lessons for the week, the month, the year, that they're not just seeing culturally responsive teaching as something that they have to find a way to wiggle into their lesson plan, but more of it as it's something that just lives and breathes in what we do in our school because we want Uh to make sure that we're reaching our students constantly on all levels, whether that be interactions in the hallways, um, what's happening from bell to bell, what's happening after school, what's happening before school. I want our teachers to be responsive in all of those spaces, not just uh, when they're in the front of the classroom reading instruction. Definitely. I think um, the problem is, you know, when we go to PDs, teachers do like to, you know, impact change immediately. But culturally responsive teaching is really about relationships and building Mm -hmm. authentic relationships. So, you know, relationships take time to build it's not just going to happen from one interaction. And maybe that's why, um, you know, we have that problem in education because we're not realizing that it's it's over time. It's a relationship thing. Absolutely. And, like, some of the best relationships that we have with our friends and our loved ones is because we, like, know their history. We know where they come from. We know the things that they've dealt with. And we can relate and we can share in those in the parts of those histories that are similar. We can learn from those histories that aren't similar and uh, use those, that information to help build that relationship. So I, I think you're absolutely right in saying that. It's definitely not something that happens overnight. It is something that, that takes some time and is going to have some setbacks, just like in any other relationship. Right. And during those times, we can't uh, give up. I think sometimes, right. too, in education, we give up too quickly when we don't see the change immediately because some of us are focused too much on um, the test scores and, you know, it's, it might not be immediate. 
like you were saying, it took right. five years to make the change from red to green in your system. Yes. So you have to build strong teams and, you know, encourage the staff to realize that this is a team effort and it's not. it might not happen tomorrow, but um, it will happen. And yes. I think also... Um, some of us are making systematic changes that make it difficult for um, collaboration, too, because a lot of people are worried about their evaluations, their personal evaluations. Mm-hmm. So that gets in the way, too. At least I see that in my own system in Prince George's County. Yes, and, like, we, we do really want to push our teachers into to risk-taking and myself into risk-taking in the classroom, a healthy amount of risk-taking especially when we know it's informed by what's best for the students. And the only way we know what's best for them is by, like you said, building those relationships and really knowing the kids that we have in front of them and, and doing our best to tailor our, our instruction and our interaction directly to those individuals we're serving. All right, definitely. Um, So my last question is just directly to your personal journey into um, your leadership role. Can you just um, share a a little bit about how you transitioned from, you know, being in the classroom to a leadership role? Um, Man, I was just so blessed to have been surrounded by some amazing leaders and some amazing mentors that from the moment I started in DPS, they were telling me um, I needed to do more. They were, they were telling me, do you just want to teach social studies? That's, that's not enough. That's you got to uh, coach. You need to do this. You need to do that. And they just constantly pushed me to make sure that I was interacting with as many kids as I could as well as really learning all the different aspects of education and in schools. They were telling me to go to union meetings. They were telling me to go to town halls, go to board meetings. They were telling me to look into some of the aspects of administration. And they just really wrapped their arms around me and showed me a lot of what leadership looked like. So I think I was only teaching maybe three years before I was asked to go into a hybrid role, and I was only comfortable in doing that because I had great mentors that really showed me the way. Um, The current principal at my school, Nick Dawkins, was my assistant principal at my last school, and he just constantly pushed me in making sure that my instruction was the best that it could be, that the curriculum that I was providing for my students reflected them, as well as taking me on a lot of his administrative walks and talking to me about his job, the positive, the negative effects of it, the things that he had to think about on the daily and making me think about as a teacher what I was doing for him as an assistant principal. And then by the time I got into my hybrid role, it was very much, again, a a different group of mentors and leaders. This time it was the principal at the time was Tony Smith, who really had this almost blind faith in me, who he came in to replace the principal that had been there for a while. And 
he knew I wanted to try to spread my wings a little bit and, and try this hybrid role thing. And without knowing me very well and just in the interview, he was like, all right, you know, we'll do it. And, I mean, he held me accountable to being the best of, the, the best that I could possibly be. And being the best that I could possibly be was the only option I had working for Tony. And I really appreciated that because him pushing me in that way really got me working hard, got me wanting to, to do my best. And then when I switched to my the new school where Nick would be the principal at, I really wanted to, like, to just to continue to shine. I went and started studying the administrative part of working in the school so I could be able to have better knowledge of that and, and pass the admin test. Um, I'm currently a doctoral student learning about urban ed and diverse communities, just constantly wanting to, to develop myself. And I think probably the most impactful piece of all of it was all these leaders around me have been black men and people of color. And to be able to see not only Nick and Tony and Alan, um, all brothers, showing me this and modeling this, this way of being a leader in education as well as being a part of uh, education groups like EDLOC, which is Educated Leaders of Color out of D.C., and being able to see all of them and working with just other teachers around the country and with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I've been so lucky to be able to just been surrounded by amazing leaders that me being able to step into the role that I have and need to start to think about my roles in the future, I mean, it's really been easy. Like, I, I mean, blessed. Like, I haven't not seen a model of what I envision myself doing, and I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case for everybody, but in, in my case, uh, this kid from Aurora was super lucky in that sense. Blessed, really. All right. Thank you so much for um, sharing your truth about education and how um, representation for you um, really changed your outlook and your outcomes on how you're able to impact education. And, you know, I think this circles back right to the classroom, too, for our students, that we need to make sure that there's representation of themselves excelling as well as um, also having that enthusiasm to excel, having that mentor. So um, just based on my interaction with you, um, I just want to say thank you for how you impact education, and thank you for sharing your truth on Reminisce. Man, thank you for having me. Thank you for doing the work that you do. Um, I was all over your website. I've listened to the other podcasts that you've done before. Like, I, I'm, I'm humbled and and blessed to, to be able to hop on and be able to represent on Reminisce. So thank you for, for extending the opportunity uh, so much, and thank you for the work that you're doing and contributing and making sure people's truths get heard. All right. Thank you.